Well, maybe you've heard about the couple who were out in their yard doing some yard work and the wife happened to come across a, a rattlesnake, about a four-foot rattlesnake. She yelled for her husband. He came with a shovel, and the husband took that shovel and chopped the snake's head off, and he was gathering up the snake and the shovel to, to get rid of it, and somehow that severed head bit him, and apparently it released all of his venom in him, and, and he collapsed immediately and, and began to bleed internally, uh, began to have seizures, went blind, they took him to the hospital, and they gave him allegedly 26 doses of anti-venom, and he was making it uh, good enough, I suppose, after, after this bite. But who knew that a rattlesnake would still bite you after you'd cut uh, its head off? Well, this fellow learned the hard way that, that that can happen. What kinds of lessons have you learned the hard way? I know there's some lessons I've learned the hard way. I can tell some stories, probably, probably shouldn't this morning, and I'll bet some of you could tell some stories. Um, do we have to learn the hard way? Or is there another road? Is there another path? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at Haggai chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the book of Haggai, and we'll see that God's people of old, they had to learn the hard way in many instances. But we're going to see that there's another path that we can take, a path that leads us to have a soft heart toward God, a longing heart toward him instead of a hard heart. Now, this book contains the messages of the prophet Haggai. And for that reason, it's reasonable to conclude that he is the author of this book, the prophet Haggai. Uh, to understand the book of Haggai, you need a, an overview or an understanding of Israel's history up to this point. So I want to give you that quickly. Uh, God had called Abraham, you remember, and he said to Abraham, I am going to bless all the peoples of the world through you. And, and I'm going to, to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you a land just for you and for your descendants. And so God called Abraham. Later, God would give his people that land, and the nation of Israel was born. Well, one of the kings of Israel was Solomon, and during this time, Israel was flourishing, doing fantastic. And Solomon led the people to build a magnificent temple, a beautiful and amazing temple. And this was the place that the people brought their sacrifices and their offerings to God. In a sense, this was the place where the people, where they met with God. And the temple symbolized the presence of God. It symbolized the fact that the people knew God and wanted him to be in their midst. They wanted to worship him and love him and to follow him. But this is what happened. After this period of, of a great, uh, just incredible blessing in the nation's history, they began to sort of well, they began to walk away from God. They began to rebel against God. And God sent prophets to come and to call them back, but they would not come back. And so finally, God raised up the Babylonian Empire. And he used King Nebuchadnezzar and his forces to come and to absolutely wipe away Jerusalem. The walls of the city were destroyed. The temple was completely ransacked. And many of the people were carried into in captivity in Babylon. It was a terrible time in the nation's history. Well, this, the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in 586 BC. Well, some years later, God raised up another empire, the Medo Persian Empire. And this empire overtook 
the Babylonians. And the leader, King Cyrus, permitted the Jews to return to their homelands. So many of them did around 538 BC. And at that point, when they returned to their homelands, they began rebuilding the temple. Again, the temple symbolized the presence of God amongst his people. But they faced opposition and quickly abandoned the work. We saw in Haggai chapter 1 that the folks abandoned the work on the temple, but they had built their own houses. It had been nearly 20 years, and they had their houses. But the temple still lied in, it, it still lied in ruins. And so God called the people to begin work on the temple, and they did. And God said that he would help them as they begun this work on the temple. Let's pick up there in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says. Asks, ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, does it become defiled? And the priest answered, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. Now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, but from this day on, I will bless you. So Haggai's third message comes on December the 18th, 520 B.C., which is three months after they had begun work on the foundation of the temple. We see from verse 18, it seems that they had completed this initial phase of construction. The, the foundation of the temple had been completed, and there was a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. We, we have this done. And God takes this moment, much like a parent would who, who seizes on a teachable moment. A parent instructs their child and guides their child. And God takes this opportunity to, to sort of teach and to guide his people. So let's take a closer look at God's message to his people, looking in verse 11 and following. God instructed Haggai to inquire of the priests. Now, the priests had the responsibility of applying the law to specific situations, particularly when it came to, to ceremonial or ritual cleanness or purity or impurity back in the days of, uh, of the sacrificial system. And so God instructs Haggai to ask the priest this question, and this is an object lesson of sorts for his people. He says the first question, suppose a man is carrying holy meat, and this is meat that had been used in sacrifice in his robe. And if the robe touches some other food, will that food then become holy? And the answer the priest gave is no, it wouldn't become holy. And then he asks another question. Suppose a person comes into contact with, with a corpse. 
if they touch that food, the person that came into contact with the corpse, if that man touches any of this food, will the food become defiled? And the priest answered, yes, it will become defiled. And then God applied this lesson to his people. You see, sin is much more easily spread than holiness. God said, you know what? This is a picture of you. It's a picture of my people. Remember when God had rescued his people from the nation of Egypt? And he said to them in Exodus 19, 6, you will be my people. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be my holy nation. In other words, God had planned for his people to be set apart to walk in holiness and purity, but that's not what they had done. They had walked in rebellion and in sinfulness. And so he says, because of your sin, this nation became defiled, and everything you touched became defiled. So basically, God said to his people, you're unclean, and everything that you lay your hands on, it has become unclean. Now imagine that for a moment. What a heavy thing to hear. You're unclean and everything you touch is unclean. He says this, this temple that has been desolate for, for years now, it stands like a dead corpse, an unforgettable reminder that you have placed everything else above me. It stands as a reminder of your sinfulness and of your rebellion. What hope did the people of God have? They were sinful. Everything they touched was sinful, God said. The only hope the people had was the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God. And we see in verse 19, we'll get there in a moment, that that's exactly what God gave. God gave his mercy. What about you and me? What hope do we have before God? You see, God is exceedingly holy. He is absolutely pure. But we're not. We're sinful. Even at our best, we're sinful. Our best actions are often marred by by mixed motives. You name it, we're, we're broken in our sin. How can we, as sinful people, approach a God who is absolutely pure? Now, some of us have envisioned, well, one of these days when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to pull up my list and say, God, look at all the great things I've done. Give me a high five. Aren't you proud? Listen, your list is going to melt away when you stand before God in all of his holiness. Your list is a joke. You have no hope. I have no hope when I stand before him in all of his purity. The only hope that you have. It's the mercy of God. It's the only people, the only hope that the people in Haggai's day had. It is the only hope that I have, that you have. We are guilty and we need the mercy of God. But you know what? Just like God did in the days of Haggai, he has done for us. He has shown us his mercy. He sent his son who came to this earth and who lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he was nailed to the cross and he suffered and he died on the cross. And do you know why? He suffered because a holy God couldn't ignore your sin and my sin. And instead of ignoring our sin, which he couldn't do, compromise his very nature, he took the the wrath that he has toward all that is wrong and sinful and wicked and he placed the penalty for that upon his own son. And he made a way for people who are sinful like you and me to have our sins 
washed clean. You see, he extended his mercy. It's what the people in Haggai's day needed. It is what we must have. And now when we turn from our sin and we call out to the Lord Jesus and we say to him, please forgive me. I believe you. You lived and died and rose again and I'm putting my faith in you. When you turn from your sin and you call out to God like that, then when you stand before God, you're not going to have to pull out your list. That's a joke. All you do is you stand before God and you plead the blood of Christ. And you say, Lord, I put my faith and my trust in your son and in his shed blood on the cross. And I trust that his blood has cleaned me up. And you know what? The word makes very clear you're going you're gonna to come right into the presence of God because being in heaven and having a relationship with God is nothing of what you do and it's all of what Christ has done. The people of Haggai's day had to see that and we must too. We see the kindness of God and the, the mercy of God and the people of Haggai's day Let's take a closer look at the hope that these people had, looking in verses 15 and following. Haggai reminds the people that their situation had worsened. Their situation had worsened since they had neglected God's temple. Now remember, the temple represented God's presence. So when the people neglected the temple, it was basically like saying to God, all of these things are important to us. But your presence, your closeness, that's not important to us at all. And God says, basically, since you neglected the temple, look at your life. Have things gone well with you? Have they gone your way? We see in verse 16 that the grain had only produced about 50% of what would have been expected. The yield of grapes was even worse. You see, God says to the people in Haggai's day, I'm the Lord of the harvest. I have the power to bless and I have the power to withhold blessing. And in verse 17, God says, I withheld my blessing. I withheld my blessing. He says, I didn't withhold my blessing to harm you. I withheld my blessing because I loved you. Why did God withhold his blessing from the people? Because he wanted to get their attention. He wanted to help them get on the right path, the path of seeking him. And we see that in verse 17, God brought blight to the crops. Well, what's blight? It's a, it's a condition that happens during seasons of drought when there's just a hot, dry wind and the leaves of the plants just cook and turn brown. God brought blight to the crops. Not only that, he, he brought mildew. This is the opposite problem. There's so much moisture that a, that a fungal condition grows and destroys crops. So when there wasn't blight and there wasn't mildew, then God said, I brought hail. But again, these difficulties weren't an expression of God's hatred for his people. They were an expression of his love. They were God trying to say to his people, wake up. Wake up. You're going the wrong way. You're taking the wrong path. You're putting everything ahead of me. And this won't be good for you. This is not right. So did the people recognize and say, oh, look, God is trying to get our attention. Let's change. Let's repent. Let's get our lives right. No, we see that the people remained stubborn. They they wouldn't turn. All that God did to try to get their attention wouldn't wake them. 
They just kept going their own way, kept doing their own thing. God says she wouldn't turn. They were stubborn and they were hard-hearted toward God. Does that describe you? Has God been trying to get your attention for some time now, but you just keep marching your own way, doing your own thing, knowing that God says this, that his word says this? But you know what? You'll do what you want. You'll run your life. Oh, that never ends well. For a season, it can seem like things are great. But friends, it never ends well. When you... And you might not put it this way, but when you shake your fist at God and you say to God, you say this, but I'll do what I want. Friends, that never brings blessing. It always brings pain. It always brings heartache. Like I say, for a season, things can seem like they're going great. You can rebel against God and for a while you go, this is awesome. I love it. But a day's coming that you won't love it. A day's coming that you'll shake your head and you'll say to yourself, oh God, why? Why did I ever do that? Why did I ever turn away from you? Why did I say to you that I could do it better? That day will come and it'll be a sad day. It'll be a hard day. The day had come for the people of God and it will come for you and me as well. When we rebel against God, when we're stubborn and hard, toward him. So Haggai has looked backward, but now Haggai looks forward. In verses 18 and 19, this, this was a momentous time in the nation's history. The foundation was laid again. It was completed. And now Haggai says, God is going to show you mercy. He, he's going to show you mercy. He is going to bless you. In verse 19, he asks another question. Is the grain in the barns? Well, this is December, and the answer to that question was no. The grain, it had been planted. It was still a long time until harvest, however. No one knows in December what the harvest is going to be like when it's time to, to say harvest wheat. You don't know. A, lot of, a lot's going to happen between December and the time of the wheat harvest, for example. And so Haggai asked, is the grain in the barn? The answer was yes, but then Haggai makes a bold prediction. He said, come harvest time, you're going to have a bumper crop. You're going to have an amazing, incredible crop. And he said, it won't just be that. You're going to have a great yield of grapes and figs and pomegranates, all of their crops. In other words, we're going to produce great blessing. Why? Because God, in his kindness, decided to show his people mercy. And they had responded at this point in obedience to him. And they would experience the blessings of obeying him and of following him. So what does this passage teach us for today? God's blessings are known as we obey him. God's blessings are known as we obey him. Imagine for a moment that that you're a child again. Now some of you are kiddos. You won't have to imagine too hard. Let's suppose that you're walking with your parents along a dirt road and, and running parallel to this dirt road is a set of railroad tracks. Your parents are walking on the dirt road, but you and your brother, you climb up onto the railroad tracks and you're walking along the tracks and then suddenly your parents holler at you and say, get down, get off the tracks, come back. Now there's a really good chance 
that there's a good reason that your parents are telling you to get off the railroad tracks and you'd be wise to listen to them. You'd be wise to get off the tracks and to get back to your parents because your dad had seen coming from behind a train and you didn't see that. And so you get off the tracks and and you're there with your parents and you're good, but when you refuse to get off the tracks and when you say, you know what, I'll do life the way I want to do it, Well, you're just staying right there on the tracks. And friends, the end is not good. You see, there's some similarities here in our relationship with God. If we refuse to, to obey him, we'll miss out on his blessings, on his protection. If we refuse to submit to him, it'll be at our own cost. It'll be at our own pain, at our own peril. But on the other hand, if we'll choose to obey him by his grace, we'll find blessing. We'll find his peace. I'm not meaning that everything will be easy. Life this side of heaven's never easy. There's always difficulty and challenge. But when you walk with him in obedience, there's a strength that he gives you that you can't get anywhere else. There's a peace that he brings that you can't find somewhere else. Oh, yes, walking And obedience brings blessing. It brings blessing. Well, let's think together about how the truths in this passage ought to reflect our lives and our thinking. First, consider what place God has in your life. Consider what place God has in your life. You see, the Jews had placed God at the bottom of their priority list. Now, they may have acknowledged them with their words and said, Oh, yes, God is very important. But their actions told the real story. And friends, so do ours. We can talk about how much God means to us all day long. But the reality, well, that's revealed by our actions and by our behavior. Everything else is just talk, isn't it? We can can say all sorts of things, and I'm sure that the Jews did, and yet it wasn't real in their lives. So I ask you, what place does God have in your life? Do you really love him? Or do you just sort of fit him in when, he, when it's convenient? Throw him a bone every now and then. Sometimes we talk about a person in a relationship two-timing God. Well, what does this mean? Well, a fella has another girl on the side. How many of us two-time God or far worse, put him even lower on our list of priorities? That's what the people were doing in that day. That's exactly what was happening. But you know what? God wouldn't accept this place in the lives of his people then, and he will not accept any other place in our lives today. He brought this adversity into the lives of his people to wake them up, and in his mercy, he will bring things into our lives to wake us up as well when we're going our own way, when we're chasing after what is second rate. So are you giving God first place in your life? Brothers and sisters, God never settles for a participation ribbon. He always wants first place in our lives. Does he have first place in your life? Next, beware of developing a hard heart Toward God. Beware of developing a hard heart toward God. In Jeremiah 17 9, the
the prophet warns, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? You see, our hearts can trick us. Our hearts can play games on us. Our hearts may say, hey, I'm, uh, this is what I really want. This is, what, this is what's going to be best for me. This is what's going to be great. But if that doesn't line up with the word of God, it's our hearts deceiving us. It's our hearts tricking us. You see, our hearts can grow hard toward God where we no longer sense the Spirit's conviction, where we no longer sense the, the prompting of the Spirit. We've grown hard toward God often. One of the prophets who prophesied at the same time as Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, spoke of this when he spoke of the Israelites of old. In Zechariah 7, 12, he said, they made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey. They made their hearts like a rock. Friends, could that describe some of us here today? We've made our hearts like a rock. Well, how do you do that? This is how you make your heart like a rock. You know what God says, and then you do what you want. You know what God says, and then you do what you want. You know what he says, and you go your own way. And after a while, your heart hardens toward God. It becomes calloused toward God. It becomes, as the prophet Zechariah said, like a rock. Like a rock. Are you hardening your heart today? Is your heart becoming harder and harder? This doesn't happen overnight. It happens decision after decision after decision. You know, a callus grows on your heart. You choose to go your own way. A callus grows in your heart. You choose again. I'm, I, I'll, I'll change eventually, but hey, right now, this is what I think is best for me. There's another callus, another callus, another callus. And eventually your heart, well, it becomes hard. It becomes like a rock. And then it's hard to get back to God. You've made your heart so hard that then you can't even sense his promptings. You can't even feel the conviction of the Spirit so often. It's a dangerous place to be. It's where Israel had been. The author of Hebrews warned about this in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deceptions. So notice in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, one of the ways to avoid having a hard heart is to be a part of a covenant community. It's to be a part of a, a local family, a church family, where we can begin to kind of influence one another, where we can speak into each other's lives. So regular attendance in worship, regular involvement in Bible study, where you can interact with other believers, these are things that God uses to soften our hearts. And yet many refuse to receive these as gifts from God. We refuse to do these things that might soften our hearts. And instead, we, we work them in when we can. We make them a low priority. But these, are, these are, are ways that God opens our eyes and helps us to see. It's something like this. If you see something in my life that isn't right and you're one of my brothers in Christ or a sister in Christ, you can come to me and say, hey, pastor, I see this and it doesn't seem okay. Let's talk about that. Let's pray about that. Well, I need that sometimes because I, I, 
I may have allowed some sin to, to blind me, to trick me. We, we need that as a, as a people. And that's what a church family is meant to be, where we love each other and we speak into each other's lives in love, of course, to strengthen and help one another. Next, pursue God with passion and persistence. Pursue God with passion and persistence. So the question here is this, are you chasing after God? Do you really want to know him? Are you after him? In Jeremiah 29, 13, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel who were in captivity in Babylon. And he said this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you want to know God this morning? Then say to God, I am laying it all down. I want to know you with all that I am. I'm coming after you, Lord, with my whole heart. Like my kids try to talk me out of candy, let's chase after God. Let's do it relentlessly. Let's do it with passion. Let's do it with persistence. Let's chase after him. Let's run after him. Let's stay at it. Let's quit settling for for second-rate things. Let's quit putting him to the side. Let's quit making him... Honestly, one of the lowest priorities of our lives? Well, how can we do this? Well, well, one of the key ways is to be in the Word every day. You need to have, as a part of the rhythm of your life, a set time that every day you meet with God, that you open up the Word of God, and you say to God before you read, God, speak to me as I read your Word. I want to know you. And then go digging for, for the treasure of, of God's Word. Dig there and let Him use the word to shape your life. Now, some of you might think, well, hey, I'm going to do that and it's going to be like magical. It's going to be like somebody put some kind of uh, magic dust on me and all my problems are going to go away. No, it's not like that. But it's like this. When you read the word daily and you get into the word daily, slowly, almost imperceptibly, God begins to change you and shape you. And over the course of a week, you may notice no difference. But if you are in his word regularly, Oh, this time next year, there's going to be a difference. You're going to be a different person from who you were a year ago. You see, God just slowly begins to shape and to transform our hearts. Are you in the Word daily? Are you seeking Him in prayer? Are you involved in a, a Bible study class where, where you're interacting with other believers? Are you committed to, to a church family, to, to regular worship? These are ways to chase after God and to keep our hearts from becoming deceived and hard. Are you pursuing Him with passion? Are you pursuing him with persistence? Next, rely wholly on the mercy of God. Rely wholly on the mercy of God. In Haggai's message, the people were defiled and all that they touched were defiled. Their hope, their only hope was God's mercy and so is ours. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is that every one of us is sinful and separated from God. Our only hope is his mercy. One author told the story of facing a masked man with scalpels, also known as a surgeon. And he was going to have surgery on his foot. After having the surgery, it was quite extensive. His doctor warned him of all the things that he couldn't do. Don't bicycle. Don't go mountain climbing. Don't go running. He said, whatever sounded fun, the surgeon said, you can't do it. Well, he'd gone uh, back for a follow-up after going through some therapy, and, and he said to the doctor, hey, this time of year, me and some of my buddies get together and we spend uh, a day out on the golf course. Now, if I'm really careful 
and I just use my upper body, not my lower body. Can, can I do this? And the doctor looked at him, and he said, for the next two months, if you go golfing, I'm going to be very, very unhappy with you. I'm going to be very unhappy with you. Well, the man was frustrated, but he knew deep down that the doctor had his best interest at heart. To play golf at this point, well, it could harm the surgery that had been done on his foot. And in so many ways, friends, God is like this surgeon. A surgeon guides a person to physical healing, and God is like that when it comes to our spiritual lives. He wants to shape us and move us to spiritual wholeness. But we've got to obey Him. We've got to to follow through and and do what He says, not in our own strength, of course, and in His grace and and by His power. But we've got to have a, a receptive heart toward Him, a tender heart toward Him. So today, Won't you seek to know him and to follow hard after him? And when you do, you'll know the rich blessings of God that you can't know from any other way. So if you're a believer, I ask you again, are you following hard after God? Or are you allowing your heart to grow hard toward God? Is your heart becoming calloused as you say to him, you know what, God, I'll do my own thing. I'll go my own way. Or as you simply become distracted, oh, I gotta do this. I gotta be involved in that. Our kids have gotta be in that. This is, oh, we, we gotta be a part of that. Oh man, this is coming up. I've gotta be a part of that. God, I'm sorry, I haven't been in church in six months. And I'm a ch- my family around your word together in days. But we did all these things, God. And God said to his people then, the temple in ruins, it's like a dead corpse revealing your priorities. Would he say that to you? Brother, sister, would he say that to you? This morning, let's say to God, if you know him, let's say to him, God, change my heart. Give me a heart that's hungry for you, that longs for you. Give me a heart that wants to know you. You see, there's life and blessing and obedience. So I ask you today, if you belong to him, which will it be? Blessing or blight? For those of you who are here who don't know the Lord Jesus today, you could could know Christ. Today, you could experience the mercy of God. How, how How do you do that? Well, you call out to him and you say, God, I know that I've sinned and I believe that Jesus came to this earth, that he died on the cross, that he was buried and he came back to life and I want to follow him. And the Bible says that when you call out to Jesus in faith like that, that God saves you and you experience the sweet and the tender mercies of God. Friend, why would you reject his mercy today? Why would you walk away from the mercy of God? Do you think one day you're going to stand before him and you're going to argue your case? Friend, you can't argue your case before a God who is absolute and utterly holy. You have no case. Your only hope is the mercy of God. Would you reject his mercy? Let's pray.